The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest and a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. Thanks be to God, too. How are you, how are you doing? Doing great, Father. Doing yeah. great. Good to be Glad here. Glad to hear it. Good to be here. Father, I would like to try and get through some viewer emails tonight, if you're up for it. Um, and this first one here is from a viewer who says that he is having doubts about the Catholic faith. And he hopes that you, Father Jenkins, can help him reconcile this. He writes, I have had a hard time reconciling the Catholic teaching on self-defense and killing in self-defense in certain circumstances. From what I've seen in the church fathers, uh, for example, St. Augustine and St. Basil, uh, they seem to be against self-defense and against killing. And also there are scriptures such as uh, not, resist, not to resist evil, avenge not yourselves, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, etc. So how is it that St. Thomas Aquinas and his Summa and the uh, Catholic Church in general, how is it that they teach self-defense is a duty or that it's at least acceptable? Well, uh, first of all, our writer there mentioned that he was, this challenged his faith. And uh, I'm a little puzzled why. He didn't really explain why. Does he see a contradiction here? Or maybe maybe that's his point. I'm kind of inferring that he sees the early church fathers saying one thing, and then St. Thomas Aquinas and, and others, after a certain point, all justifying what previously had been not justified. I'm assuming that that's what he means, but that's that's really not the case. I mean, that's why he's writing to us. He's asking, uh, is this really so? Is there an inconsistency in the teaching of the church? And um, I would say that, of course, there is no inconsistency. And I would say that not just from a, a theoretical point of view <clears throat> or a dogmatic point of view, but in a, in a very practical, real point uh, statement that there is not an inconsistency here. <clears throat> I don't know that St. Basil or St. Augustine actually outright condemned self-defense, fighting in self-defense, even killing in self-defense. I, I, I'm sure that St. Augustine and St. Basil recommended um, being uh, very accepting of uh, everything from slights and insults to wounds and even death for our Lord looking at that as the ideal, and it is, where it is possible. Um, for example, I mean, they just finished, they lived at a time that just came out of the catacombs, basically. Um, Diocletian, the most uh, vicious of the persecutors, right? At least his, his persecution is often regarded as the worst of the, of the ten great waves of persecution that attacked the church. Uh, Diocletian uh, reigned and, until he finally resigned in the early 300s, very early 300s. <clears throat> and in a sense, kind of set the stage for Constantine and his victory, which came about 10 years later. Well, 
Actually, just a little, not even that long after, afterwards. But in any case, so living in that century now when, you know, the 318 bishops met at Nicaea in 325 uh, to uh, assert the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ against Arianism, uh, they, they would know that so many of those bishops who met at Nicaea had been in the dungeons of uh, Diocletian, had suffered there, and uh, were, were ready to suffer martyrdom with so many others who actually did die, and yet they did not perish in those dungeons. They survived and went on to become priests and bishops and finally to meet in Nicaea for the first great ecumenical council of the church. This was the example that St. Augustine and St. Basil would have had. And um, they were the very next generation to come after these men. Surely they would have seen the heroic fortitude, the great grace that was given to these martyrs, and um, the spirit of the martyrs that was even in the fathers of the Council of Nicaea. And no, no doubt that they would hold this up as the great ideal, that, that, this, that martyrdom was something uh, to be cherished, not to be run from, and uh, not to be resisted. But still, I mean, that being the case, I don't know that St. Augustine, St. Basil, or the other fathers forbade self-defense, just outright. And I don't know that they actually ever said that it was murder to kill someone if it was necessary to defend one's own life. Um, if there are citations, and I, I know, I mean, I've, I've seen citations, especially in St. Augustine, where he, he does discuss this question. I just haven't seen a citation that uh, has him out and out condemn the idea of killing in self-defense and just calling it outright murder. Um, but um, you see, we have to keep in mind too, uh, Tom, that all during this time of the early persecutions of the church, uh, many of the great martyrs were soldiers. I mean, there are, two, there are two great classes of martyrs in the early days of the church. You have the virgin martyrs, and they're like a legion of their own, you know, a, a, sacred, a holy legion of virginal purity. And um, many of, some of them are named in the Litany of the Saints. Many others are named in the, in the, in the, um, in the uh, Mass, yeah, the of the Mass. Yep. And, but there are many, many others. You go through the calendar mm -hmm. of, uh, of the church, and you turn the pages of the calendar, and you just see so many of the virgin martyrs. Um, but their counterparts were the young men, uh, often soldiers. And, uh, I mean, St. Sebastian himself, you know, who was a, one of the Praetorian guards, right? And you look at uh, St. Maurice and the, the, the Theban Legion, uh, martyrs, you know, dozens and dozens of martyrs uh, came to the church from the soldiery of the empire. Now, these were soldiers, so... You know, their job was to kill the enemy, right? I mean, they, they, they went into battle. And they were known to be particularly brave, valiant, dutiful soldiers. And uh, the church not only did not condemn them for their profession in uh, defending the empire, marching for the empire, uh, spreading the empire, as though they were a bunch of, of murderers, uh, when the time came 
that they had to lay down their life for their faith, for the love of God, they were instant in doing so, without hesitation. I mean, look at the 40 martyrs of Sebast in Armenia. Mm -hmm. uh, all soldiers. Uh, the youngest of them, a teenage boy, right? The sole survivor when the rest were dragged off the ice and thrown onto the wagon to be carted away to be burned. He was still alive. Melanchthon, uh, not Melanchthon. Uh, Melanchthon was his name, not Melanchthon. <laughs> anyway, uh, Melanchthon was his name, and his mother actually uh, was carrying him with all of her strength behind the cart that he would not die without the martyr's crown. Uh, these were all soldiers, all valiant men. The church uh, has held them up as examples of courage for their faith, but they were soldiers. So, I mean, how could the church actually say it was murder to kill in self-defense when these men were at the service of their, their country, their empire. Um, so, the, you know, human life in this world is not an absolute value in the sense that it, it is uh, inviolable. The church has always recognized the right of the state to execute those who are guilty of grave crimes. And as it is permissible for the society to defend itself, uh, so it is permissible for the individual, too. The church has always recognized that. St. Thomas was laying down the theological principles behind, behind this. But even St. Thomas, I mean, in laying down the morality of the question of self-defense, even unto death, he was not necessarily glorifying self-defense at the expense of martyrdom, as, as though he was somehow cheapening or lessening martyrdom and saying, rather, we choose self-defense as the right way to go. He was just trying to say, it is not sinful to do this. Mm -hmm. There's a big difference, you know, between saying, well, what, our Lord himself raised this difference. You might say, I don't want to get too far afield here. But remember when the young man came to him and said, Lord, Rabbi, he said, teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? And our Lord said, well, keep the commandments. You know, Honor thy father and thy mother, and so on. And the young man said, well, these I've kept from my youth. And um, then our Lord said, well, if you want to be perfect, then leave all things behind, come and follow me. Okay. So perfection is a higher grade, right, calling. Uh, the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience, kind of a mark of that, right, to find that higher calling in the religious life. But the fact is, it is not sinful to own property. It is not sinful to defend it. It is not sinful to live and to defend life. And, uh, you know, the theology of the Catholic Church, the moral theology of the Church, has always made that very clear. Um, the, time, the time has come, though, uh, in our own time now, when I think we need to uh, extol both. We need to make it clear that, yes, there is a need for people to defend, to defend the faith, to defend the church, to defend their families even. And that is not a vice, it is a virtue, to defend their families. And if they have to take up arms to do so, they should. Why? Because defending the innocent is not a vice, it is a virtue. I mean, I know what he's talking about here is defending oneself, okay? And that, that's a different, it takes a different approach. But here it is, Nowadays, I mean, we have 
the innocent who are being assaulted by the guilty, especially spiritually assaulted, but physically assaulted too. And we have to be ready to defend them both ways, spiritually and physically. Uh, a father has a, has a moral obligation to defend the, the lives and limbs, the welfare of his family, his children who depend on him, and his wife. He has a moral obligation to that. It would not be a virtue for him to say to an attacker, well, okay, go ahead, kill all my kids and my wife and me too. That's wonderful. We'll all be martyrs. That's not his decision to make for his children and his wife. You know? His obligation, his God-given obligation, is to protect them. And if he has to use enough force that the attacker loses his life in the process, it's not that his intention, the father's intention, was to kill somebody. His intention was to protect his wife and his child. In other words, to live up to his responsibility. It is the attacker who made it necessary that he be killed. The, one of the principles that Catholic moral theology lays down is that you cannot use any more force than you actually need to accomplish the good end, the good purpose. And that is why you're fighting, for the good purpose, not for the sake of killing people. Um, so as long as you're fighting to defend the innocent, you might well have an obligation to do so, but it is considered a virtue to be, to be willing, willing and able to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I think the Church has always made that very clear, and I don't think St. Augustine or St. Basil would contradict that in any way. Mm -hmm. And Father, isn't there also a, uh, a, a verse in Scripture in the Gospel of St. Luke that, that pertains to this idea as well? Well, yes, it was St. Luke uh, chapter 22, verse 36. Our Lord has left the upper room after the Last Supper, and he says to his apostles, before I sent you out without purse, without money, without even sandals, right? Without staff, I sent you out without these things. But now I tell you that he who has none, go and buy this for yourself. Get your, get the, get the purse, you know, the money you need. Get the, uh, the staff you need. And so on. our Lord is telling them, go and obtain these things for yourself. He even says, <clears throat> go, let, let him who can have a sword, and if he has none, let him sell his cloak and buy a sword, he says. Purchase a sword for himself. Our Lord says that. St. Luke chapter 22, verse 36. Our Lord is saying, go and purchase a sword for yourself if you don't have one. So our Lord is indicating here that, yes, you know, now is the time. Late, just moments later, it seems, I mean, just a few sentences later in the Gospel, St. Luke, by the way, the... Um, our Lord has entered the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Judas has led the, 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 armed, the guard from the Sanhedrin who are to seize our Lord. And Peter pulls out one of the two swords, they said. We have two swords, right? <laughs> our Lord said, that's enough. <laughs> well, later on, those, one of those swords appears again in the hands of Peter. He takes a swipe at the high priest and cuts his ear off. And our Lord tells Peter, put that back, put that away. Our Lord heals the servant's ear and says that, you know, God the Father would send him 12 legions of angels to defend him. Certainly more formidable than the little sword of Peter. But, uh, but our Lord was telling him, no, this is not to be. You know, you are not to defend me here. But our Lord wasn't making that a general rule applying to everyone everywhere. Our Lord said, I have not come to bring peace but the sword. That's what our Lord said. You know? So there would be conflict, and he understood this very well. Um, so... Um, I think it would be a misreading of St. Augustine and St. Basil to make it as though they were 
laying down a, a moral norm forbidding self-defense and, and the defense of the innocent, even by using violence against the guilty and attack, aggressors attacking them. I mean, you know, for myself, for yourself, if somebody were coming to kill you, you might have the option to say, okay, well, I'm willing to give my life. Especially if they're coming at you to attack you for your faith or your love of God, you would die as a martyr, right? <coughs> but you're not free to do that in the sense that your wife and children depend on you. And you might say, well, they would be depriving their, my children of a father to care for them and provide for them, depriving my wife of the same. And I am not free simply to uh, gratuitously give that up. And so even in defending my own life, I'm fulfilling a responsibility to protect them. They need me. Right? <clears throat> so, you know, I... I, I don't think St. Augustine and St. Basil would uh, disagree with that, or any of the other fathers for that matter. But I'm going to just again go back to the early church and the, 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 the great the legions of martyrs among the young men, so many of them actually being soldiers. And the church never condemned them for their profession mm -hmm. okay. uh, as soldiers. Okay. All right, uh, then next topic, Father, we have an email from a viewer who says, I have noticed on many college campuses and uh, Catholic youth groups that there has been a resurgence of C.S. Lewis. Uh, many of my Catholic friends are reading his works like Screwtape Letters and Mere Christianity. So what are your thoughts on C.S. Lewis's works, Father? Well, I think they're very entertaining, very well written. He certainly had a literary flair. <clears throat> and uh, they also have a, you know, a certain simplicity, which is charming and very bold and very colorful. Um, he certainly does represent moral issues, right, in graphic ways. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I can understand why college students would find that very interesting. I would hope that they would graduate from C.S. Lewis to reading G.K. Chesterton, though. Uh, if they read C.S. Lewis and don't go on to reading Chesterton, they've missed the boat somewhere. Uh, Chesterton is more, has more of an intellectual bent to him. I mean, he has all the virtues of C.S. Lewis's writing, but adds to it a certain intellectual flair, uh, which really uh, is not only, I would say, instructive and helping one to a kind of parable, parables, kind of modern-day parables about you know, biblical realities, you know, as C.S. Lewis has, but, but I think that Chesterton goes beyond that to enables one to be kind of a scholar of these things, uh, his implementation of paradox and so on. Now, one has to remember that C.S. Lewis, Chesterton, the others were uh, literary giants of that period, were in contact with each other. And Chesterton, as you know, was a convert, uh, there were other converts at the time, but C.S. Lewis held out. I mean, it's not as though C.S. Lewis never thought in of, of converting to the Catholic faith. He did think of it. And in fact, uh, there, was, there were those who wrote to him. Other uh, 
uh, non-Catholics wrote to C.S. Lewis because they thought that he must have a very good reason for not becoming a Catholic. So there were other other young literary men uh, of his time, maybe women too, who wrote to C.S. Lewis because they figured, okay, he knows why there's something wrong with the Catholic faith, and he can tell us why we should not convert. And uh, one in particular uh, wrote to C.S. Lewis asking uh, what his arguments were against the Catholic faith and why he resolutely refused to convert to Catholicism, when a goodly number of other literary giants of his age did. And C.S. Lewis's answer was so poor, it was mere prejudice, that this young man actually took C.S. Lewis's answer as an indication of the strength and the rightness of the Catholic faith, because Lewis could offer no real reason, serious reason for not being Catholic. Um, I don't know what prevented C.S. Lewis from conversion to Catholicism. I know he wound up, uh, I guess, linked to a divorcee. And he cared for her in her death, slow death by cancer, which would have taken some virtue, I'm sure. But nonetheless, uh, personally, I have the impression with C.S. Lewis that he felt the Catholic Church just demanded too much in terms of morality. Not that I'm accusing him of being a, a moral uh, wastrel or anything like that. But, you know, it just seems as though he had some kind of prejudice there that, that stopped him. I mean, that, this is all on the record. One, one, can, uh, one can investigate these things and look at this exchange of correspondence and judge for himself. So I think C.S. Lewis has a lot of good things to say. But I think in the end, uh, that he that uh, he failed to take that last all-important step and that something held him back. And it was not something good. I think it was something personal and uh, a weakness. Mm-hmm. Someone always has to keep that in mind. And he, didn't, he did not have the Catholic faith, and he would not. He would not have it. Okay. Um, when many others in his day were seeing the truth of Catholicism, and that uh, Elizabeth's attack on the faith was a, was a revolution against the true faith. He would not admit to that. Would I give somebody a copy of the Screwtape Letters to read? Yes, I would. Have I read them myself? Yes, I have. Uh, would I give, um, you know, any number of the other things he wrote? Uh, yeah, there are things I would. But that would only be a step in the process. I wouldn't say, hey, I'll read this, and this will tell you everything you need to know. <laughs> I would just take somebody who maybe is on the level of a, an early level of conversion, maybe somebody very worldly and so on, give them a copy of the Screwtape Letters, right? Or uh, some other work of, uh, of C.S. Lewis, I'm trying to remember some of the titles that I would recommend for different groups. But that would be basically to begin to turn their minds to thinking more in terms of uh, supernatural things and uh, moral principles. Um, but I would definitely want to take them beyond C.S. Lewis then. Okay. All right, the next email. Uh, Father, is the neocatechumenate or the way as it is also called, a legitimate charism. 
This group has been around since 1964 and apparently endorsed by many popes. It seems to be growing in the U.S. with many new seminaries and priests resulting from it. But is it truly Catholic? I would say no. Today? No. No. I mean, it might have started with very good intentions in Spain. Uh, it seems to me, though, 64, well, that's when the Crisillo movement was coming out of Spain, too. And the Crisillo had a very good look to it. It was meant to rev up Catholics and kind of... Uh, kind of ramp up their faith, right? And, and make their faith live and get them more enthusiastic and excited about their faith. Unfortunately, uh, the Curcio movement became uh, very much involved in emotions and uh, it kind of went off the rails, you know? And you get the emotions involved and um, that can impair good thinking, you know, right thinking. And uh, people can get carried away with all kinds of uh, ideas. You know, to some extent, even the charismatic and the Pentecostalist movement, I think, grows out of these things that unleash the imagination and the emotions. And then they attribute that to the Spirit, you know, as though this is the work of the Holy Ghost in them to get them all excited about something. But it could be, well, it could be a Spirit, but not that, not the Holy Ghost, you know. And um, there's definitely a connection there. I think it's happened with the neocatechumenal way, too. And that came up during Vatican II. And uh, no doubt was somewhat inspired by Vatican II. And in the, in the aftermath of Vatican II became tied to the worldly thinking of Vatican II. And um, it, it, it became corrupted with that. And now I think the neocatechumenal way is very much the neocatechumenal is very much tied up with ecumenism and um, this this kind of uh, Pentecostalism and so mm -hmm. on. Francis is all very much in favor of that. He wants to promote that uh, beyond anything we've seen. He wants to promote that uh, because he's very, very into the charismatic way of, uh, well, let's face it, that's modernism. Modernism leads to that. Modernism says faith is an experience. And when you're charismatic, you're experiencing the spirit moving within you. So there you are. You're having your faith experiences and you're, you're on a roll spiritually, they say. And, uh, it, it actually destroys the very meaning of faith in the Catholic sense of the word. Okay. Um, and it turns it into a merely an emotional experience. And I'm afraid that the neocatechumenate is very much uh, just soaked in that spirit right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why Francis is so much in favor of it. That, well, people emotionally can be manipulated. And uh, you can manipulate them to support socialism and communism and Marxism, all thinking that it's somehow compatible with Christianity. Francis certainly thinks so, right? And um, it's not. It's not. There's a reason why Pope Pius X, St. Pius X, condemned the heirs of the modernists, and uh, Pope Saturn condemned Marxism, socialism, communism. All of those things are condemned. Mm -hmm. But you reduce Christianity to emotional experiences, and that's where it goes. That's exactly where it goes, into these things. It's nothing to do with being rational. Okay. What makes us in the image of God is the fact that we can think, we can know truth, we have intelligence, and we have will to love what is good. But you turn 
um, faith into merely a matter of emotion and uh, a matter of imagination and a matter of what a person is interiorly experiencing of himself. And there's no end to what errors or per perversions one can embrace that way. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, the next, Father, can you give an overview on the new breviary of 1961 that preceded the ancient missile of 1962? It seems to have been a major one. Well, I, I think the word superseded is, uh, in other words, saying that the the later superseded the early, not not preceded the early one. So, and the answer right now is no. And the answer, the reason is because it would take a lot longer than we have left in this program right now to get into it. Is it a good question? Oh yes, it's a good, very good question. I'd like to be organized there in order, in the interest of time, though. So I ask the writer to uh, spare us, uh, spare me for the time being, and I'll uh, I'll try to get. Something together on that that would be economical in the use of time, but also clear okay. in explanation, too. Sounds good. Uh, then, then we've had this, this uh, question for a couple of weeks now, Father. Um, it was, uh, this. I'll just read, the viewer here says that uh, I received news that uh, Father Pfeiffer was consecrated by a Fenite bishop, Neil mm -hmm. Webster, uh, mm -hmm. just recently. So have you heard about this, Father, and do you know much about Bishop Webster? Is he even a valid uh, bishop? He says that there is a video of the consecration, and uh, apparently the bishop uh, mispronounces the essential words of the consecration. So what are your thoughts on this, Father, <clears throat> Father Pfeiffer being uh, apparently consecrated by Bishop Neil Webster? Well, I don't know that I've ever met Father Pfeiffer in all these years, mm -hmm. uh, but I certainly have met Neil Webster, okay? And I knew him before I was ordained, actually. And... Uh, I understand that he's, at some point in his career, had himself ordained systematically and somewhat, uh, well, you know, the, the story is, uh, the common story is that he was consecrated a bishop systematically, but I would say not only systematically, but invalidly. I could never, I could never, even, not just from an emotional point of view or anything, uh, just because I don't like it, but from a theological point of view, uh, from a sacramental point of view, I could never, ever recognize the validity of an ordination or a consecration um, perpetrated or received as Neil Webster, you know, sought and received ordination and consecration at the hands of the schismatic, really, I'm trying to be um, charitable, but also honest, uh, ecclesiastical adventurers, uh, I don't know what else to tell you. Uh, I think they're, they're not quite right. Mm -hmm. uh, the, remember now, the Vatican II unleashed uh, not only a storm of modernism in the church, but people reacting to it. And people scrambling, right? Scrambling to find vestiges of the Catholic faith from the shipwreck of Vatican II, okay? And, uh, you know, it, it's one thing to latch on to a, a board to stay afloat in a shipwreck is nothing to latch onto a brick <laughs> or the anchor, right? <laughs> and there are some people who have latched onto the anchor. And I think these schismatics, the Tooks, the Took line, and uh, <clears throat> and actually I think the Schlipsky and the rest of the, the this line is is just um, very. Again, I'm I'm trying to avoid using you know charged words over this, <laughs> but uh, they're not Catholic. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So I would not recognize Neil Webster as being a priest or a bishop, and uh, certainly not a Catholic priest or a Catholic bishop. And uh, if Father Pfeiffer um, went to him to be, <clears throat> quote-unquote, consecrated a, quote-unquote, bishop, I would say this is a tragedy. Mm-hmm. A tragedy for Father Pfeiffer <coughs> and a tragedy for those who follow him down that, uh, into that pit. Mm-hmm. The, um, there is a video, I understand, online, and it does uh, relate the actual matter and form, the time of the consecratory preface when the bishop imposes the hands, <coughs> that is assuming a real bishop, and prays the words of uh, ordination, the essential words, and yes, it's true. The the statement in Latin is almost indecipherable. <laughs> so, um, no, I, I, I would not consider that to be even remotely worthy of investigation as to whether it's valid or not, just on the face of it. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the mis- mispronunciation, I mean, that's almost a, a moot point anyway with, with what you're saying here, right? Even if he pronounced it ten times perfectly in Latin, I, I could not rec- recognize okay. that as a, as a valid consecration of a Catholic bishop. Okay. All right. I, um, it, I'm sorry, but it actually approaches the level of farce. Yeah. It's not comedy, though. It's tragedy. Yeah. I think it's a caricature of <clears throat> traditional Catholicism. Okay. Uh, well, Father, we've had this um, this question for some time now, so I'm not sure how... Um, how relevant it still is, but um, I, I think it's it's great to, to go through this. Uh, it's from a, a viewer who says uh, that uh, I need some help with the churches being closed in uh, in his his home state. Uh, this was towards the beginning of, of the the COVID pandemic. He says the bishop has allowed parking lot masses with communion distributed. Personally, I feel that this is disrespectful and a bad idea. I feel the bishop is throwing us a crumb and not standing up to a pro-choice and pro-gay Catholic governor. He allows abortion centers to be open, but I cannot worship my creator in a fitting manner. Communion is to be distributed to a person in the car. Do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I think he's describing the Novus Ordo, right? He's saying he's going to a Novus Ordo church. The the Novus Ordo bishop has shut down Mm -hmm. everything. And... um, but, you know, giving him crumbs, well, that's what the Novus Ordo is. It is giving crumbs of bread rather than the Blessed Sacrament. Yep. So, I mean, I, I agree with him that everything he's described here is a travesty and is not Catholicism, but I would say it doesn't start with Catholicism. It starts with the Novus Ordo. And he should realize that, uh, you know, after Vatican II and, and, and the years they labored, the, the modernist bishops spent laboring to create the Novus Ordo, the New Order of Liturgy. The fact that uh, at the drop of a hat, they were willing to just throw it all over, throw it all out and shut it all down because of this, this, this virus um, uh, tells you that they themselves didn't place any value on it. So, I mean, uh, why would the faithful... Why would the faithful still consider that Novus Ordo liturgy to be a Catholic liturgy when even those who created the thing um, have placed no value on it whatsoever mm-hmm. um, and treat it as though, well, you know, it, it didn't really matter in the first place. Go home and worship on your own. <laughs> and, uh, 
you know, when uh, when we think it's safe to come out from under the bed because the virus, you know, is <laughs> is not so bad, then we'll we'll emerge to um, let you come t- to our parking lots or come <laughs> wearing face masks or diapers, as they call them, and <laughs> social distance and not sing anything. Mm-hmm. If this is the approach they have to their own religious practice, then I think it's an admission that it's a completely bank, completely bankrupt. So I would just ask this poor gentleman to realize that the, the, the message in all of this is that this is not the Catholic faith. It's not the Catholic worship uh, that he's speaking of here and that he should find the traditional Catholic faith and practice it, that he should find the traditional Catholic mass offered by a real traditional Catholic priest and attend it, assess it, and receive the real, tradi- the real Catholic sacraments, <clears throat> but not these Vatican II concoctions or, mm. uh, well, I, I'm, again, I'm trying to avoid uh, <laughs> saying uh, more, uh, let's say, incendiary words, but mm-hmm. <laughs> trying to get the point across. Mm-hmm. And Father, and I know we've been over the, this question before, but how, how, what is the best way to, um, to address this, this uh, issue that we see so often where there are very good, willing um, more conservative-minded, uh, traditional, traditionally-minded Novus Ordo Catholics who, you know, they, they, they do really love the faith, they do really really have a good will, want, want, want to be a, a practicing Catholic, but they there's just this question of, of obedience. You know, we have another email here, which I think <clears throat> plays perfectly into this, where it's, um, this, this viewer says yes. that um, he's, he's really struggling because... Um, he says, you know, as a member of the, the mystical body of Christ, I must accept every dogma taught by the church, and in particular the, the dogma that all the popes have been given a divine office through God. So how am I to understand the revolution of modernism in the, in the church? He asks, if the post-Vatican II church is the mystical body of Christ on earth exercised through Christ, and if it's not, then where do I find that true church? So how do you, what is the best way to, to um, address Well, he's got the wrong like idea if he thinks popes cannot teach error. They can. They have. Popes have taught error. Um, you know, John the 22nd, right? Mm-hmm. Clearly. And Honorius the first. Definite cases where the church is recognized for hundreds of years. These popes taught errors. And uh, Honorius the first was excommunicated after his death, condemned and listed as a heretic because he did not resist the the truth. Uh, he did not resist the heresy that was being taught at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, by that, even implicitly, and there are some say in letters that he sent to Sergius that he actually formally embraced the heresy. But I don't know how well substantiated it is, but, but it is a fact that he demanded that Catholics in the year 630 not preach the truth of the faith um, because it was divisive against the monothelitists, you know. So uh, the monophysitists, the monothelitists were kind of a, of a piece uh, together. But in any case, regardless, the fact is he forbade Catholics to preach the truth about Christ having actually two wills, one divine and one human, and both of them operative. So, popes can definitely teach errors and suppress the truth of the faith and even order the Catholic people not to teach the truth of the faith. We've seen that happen before. Um, but the fact is, um, the, uh, the, the church does 
teach that the church herself cannot teach error. And so the church makes a distinction between the Pope and the church. The church itself, as the divine institution of Christ, uh, cannot teach error, okay? But a Pope can. And the question comes, well, what kind of error can a Pope teach? And at what point are his errors such that he cannot be Pope because he's no longer Catholic, you know? St. Robert Bellarmine discussed that issue, that very issue, and outlining five different theological positions that worthy theologians of the church have expressed over time. And he himself, rather apparently, seems to favor the, the position that if a pope teaches heresy, is admonished and insists on teaching heresy, that is, uh, contrary to the defined dogma of the Catholic Church, that he would not be a Catholic, and that can be declared that he's not a Catholic by a council of bishops, the hierarchy called for that, and that they would recognize, therefore, that he could no longer be the Pope. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't make that statement, they wouldn't depose him, they'd just say, essentially, that he has defected from the Catholic faith, he's no longer a Catholic. <clears throat> so he's no longer a member of the Catholic Church, and he can't be the head on earth of the Catholic Church that he's no longer a member of, Okay, essentially, when it comes down to. <clears throat> But uh, the point is that um, we have a situation here where we have Francis, right, who's teaching many, many errors, almost continuous errors. He's virtually, like, I don't know, maybe exaggeration, everything he says is offensive to pious ears. Some of it may be, uh, you know, uh, sententiae uh, heresim proxima, you know, near, near, related to heresy or close to heresy, and no doubt and there are times when he's actually said things that are contrary to the continual teaching of the church in her ordinary magisterium, Her heresy, the heretical teachings. Right? So here we have a case where uh, Francis has actually redefined the papacy for himself. When he said he was going to establish a synodal church, or make the church a synodal church governed by synods, he actually laid out the scheme that he had. He expressed what, what he meant by that. And when you take what he said, and you look at the encyclical Pascendi by St. Pius X in 1907, and you compare what St. Pius X condemned in his encyclical, and what, what Francis is not only advocating, but which he's actually saying, this is what I'm doing, you realize that they are, those, things Francis is doing is exactly what was condemned by St. Pius X. As modernism, the synthesis of all heresies, he calls it, right? I mean, Francis says, and I, you know, I can't say word for word what he said, but you can go and take a look when he talks about establishing his synodal church, that the synods get the people together and they tell uh, the bishops what they're experiencing and living their faith at that moment in the world of this time. And the bishops basically distill down all of these stories and anecdotes and, uh, you know, personal accounts of people listening, living the faith. Um, and the bishops then distill this down into a document. And they present it to Francis. And then Francis further distills it down into a, a number of just bullet points, basically. Formulas, you know. And these become the, the new dogmas. But the revelation itself comes from the people, of their experience of the faith and how they're living the faith at that time. That's where God is now. 
That's where faith is now. That's where the church is now in the grassroots. And Francis's role essentially is to make the final distillation of the people's experience of God at that moment and then to pronounce it in some formula that everyone can, can, uh, you know, put on his book bag or, you know, carry a badge around or, or, or proclaim as the new, the new understanding of who God is and what the, what the faith is at this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, have I said it exactly the words that he didn't know? But you can go and read it and see if I, I was justified in saying what I said. Is his, is his per, uh, permission. Now, that is not the papacy. And if that's the papacy as Francis sees it, he doesn't even believe in the papacy. And if he doesn't believe in the papacy, he couldn't actually formally accept the office of the papacy of an office he doesn't even believe in. So this is a very serious matter here. So, um, you know, our writer here, I'm sure, is of goodwill and wants to do what is right, but he's mistaken a number of points that can get him into serious trouble. Um, so, I, you know, I would just... Try to tell them, look, the, the, the faith is where it has always been. The church has been where she has always been. The truth of Christ has been where it's always been. It's what Christ established, gave to his apostles and what the apostles taught, and has been taught by the church century after century after century after century until the revolution of the modernists who actually hijacked the institutions of the Catholic Church, wormed their way in, got control, and then injected the poison of modernism everywhere they could and created basically a modernist modernist religion and a new order, well, I would say a modernist faith which is animating a new order religion. It's a result of the modernist revolution of Vatican II. And those who follow that are following a revolutionary religion that is not of Christ, but is of, of this really a fabrication of the synthesis of all heresies, as St. Pius X said. So they're, they're making a tragic mistake in following that as though that's the Catholic faith. It's not. But the, the traditional Catholic faith is still there, correct? The traditional Catholic faith is still very much alive. It is still very much there. Where? Well, it is in those who practice it, for one thing. And there are, there are Catholic, traditional Catholic bishops, and there are traditional Catholic faith, well, traditional Catholic priests, right? And the fact that the modernists have used whatever means, nefarious means they could to try to squelch that, uh, doesn't mean that uh, they can put that to death or destroy it. They can't. We know that. They cannot destroy the traditional Catholic faith. With all the efforts they made to eradicate the traditional Mass, and that was their original plan, and they hammered away for 20 solid years at eradicating, simply obliterating the traditional Catholic faith and uh, the traditional Catholic Mass, the Roman writers, and wiping it from the face of the earth, they didn't succeed. Um, and so it is with the traditional Catholic faith. They haven't succeeded in erasing that from the hearts of mankind by replacing it with their false modernism uh, of Vatican II. So uh, people have to, have to face the fact that, yes, the traditional Catholic faith is very much here alive, but it's sort of in the situation at the time of St. Athanasius. When uh, Liberius... Uh, actually condemned Athanasius and excommunicated him. For what? For practicing the traditional Catholic faith, that's all. Believing that Christ is truly the Son of God mm-hmm. and condemning the error of the Arians. That was his crime in the eyes of the Arians, and they, they succeeded in, in turning the emperor and Liberius, Pope Liberius, against, against him. 
But the faith is very much here as it was even at that time. The faith is immortal. Athanasius' name means the immortal one, right? <clears throat> and he's a prime example of someone who uh, clung to the Catholic faith through thick and thin and, and all the, uh, through all the errors of the, of the Arians, all of their political and their ecclesiastical machinations could not destroy the faith, the immortal faith in the immortal Athanasius. <clears throat> and so he's a great champion for us today, you know, when we held on to faith through it all, through all things. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what we're doing now. So the faith is still very much here, very much alive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Father, what, what you described with, with Francis and his, his synodal church, <clears throat> I mean, that, that's not Catholic by, by any, any stretch of the imagination. I think that, that's clear to see. But, mm -hmm. you know, I, I had, a, I just, uh, over the weekend, I, I had an interesting conversation with one of our, our viewers who, uh, one of our new viewers who, who said, you know, he had, he had heard all of these, um, all of, all of these crazy stories about how the, the Society of St. Pius X, of which you, or I'm sorry, the Society of St. Pius V, of which you are a member, uh, how, how this was just kind of some crazy fringe lunatic group, you know, and, and he said once he started watching our videos and listening to you, that you just sounded like a Catholic priest. And, and I think that, that, that is so, so great to hear something that, that's so clear like that. You know, you can clearly, you know, anyone who has any, any knowledge of the Catholic Church and Catholic history whatsoever can look at Francis's Senatorial Church and see, this is not Catholic yeah. whatsoever. And they can listen to, to the, the truth that, that, you know, we talk about here on the program and say, okay, this is perfectly in line with 2,000 years of, of Catholic tradition. And so I think if one honestly looks at this, you know, it, it is very, very well, clear I, to I, see. I appreciate that because I would aspire to nothing more than sounding like a real Catholic priest. <laughs> but that tells you that to speak as a real Catholic priest now means you are fringe. That's, that's true. And you that's are uh, considered <clears throat> strange, uh, mm -hmm. insane, even macho, out of touch with reality, out of touch with society and mankind today, all of that. And this is the price we pay for fidelity to Christ, you know. But uh, and, uh, if you stood up in the, a crowd and you began talking, you're speaking your Catholic faith, they would regard you the same way. Yes. Right? And um, this is the way they try to portray our Lord. Do we not say rightly that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? <laughs> that was the condemnation of the Pharisees, you know. They wanted everybody to nod their heads and say, oh, yes, he must be a Samaritan and uh, be possessed by the devil. But we shouldn't be surprised to have that happening today. But that's certainly not going to stop us from speaking the truth. Um, by the grace of God, that will not stop us. That's right. Well, Father, thank you for being here tonight. And I appreciate all your time. We got through a uh, decent amount of emails, so it's very good. Thank good. you. Thank you. Very well, much. I thank our writers and I thank our listeners now. Ask them to help out. And uh, again, mention we have some online courses and uh, we actually had some response from the last program. Uh, some have signed up for the introduction to Latin. Adults are signing up for Good. that. I think one or two might have even signed up for my uh, religion program, uh, fourth book of Our Quest for Happiness. So uh, I'm glad. And any of those who would be interested in, in these courses, please uh, just contact us through the ICA Ohio website uh, dot com. I think so, yeah. ICOhio.com. Right. And uh, we'd be glad to send information, whatever you need. I also ask you to keep in your prayers, please, some dear souls who just passed away. And uh, I thank you for those prayers. God knows who they are, even if you don't. <coughs> and if you're praying as, at the result of this request, in answer to this request, God knows for whom you're praying. So that's all that's needed. Absolutely. Thank you, Father.
Certainly, Tom. Thank you. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.